Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. This week, we'll discuss the latest from Ukraine and the upcoming G20 conference. But first, the biggest story probably still on everyone's mind is what happened last Tuesday. A week ago on this program, we previewed a little bit of what we were expecting from this midterm election and this really seems to be one – I think first say that you know, we, we don't really do nitty-gritty politics here. But I think there are some very interesting takeaways about uh, kind of the state of civil society as well as uh, what happened with regard to abortion around the country that I think we, we, we definitely have some bigger picture insights on here. But the, the real story of Tuesday is how wrong so many of the predictions were, at least the ones that I was hearing, the, the typical – expectation for a midterm election in the first term of someone's presidency is that it goes against the party in power in the White House. And as I look around at the results of this, here's what I'm seeing. Starting really in the 2000s with the incredibly close Bush-Gore election and then the following uh, the last midterm that I think we could really say was somewhat anachronistic, mostly because of the 9-11 impact that was had on the 2002 elections. We have seen first these huge pendulum shifts from one party in power to the other party in power. And the Republicans in 2002 and 2004, in 2006, it starts swinging back. Democrats take a lot of seats in that midterm. Barack Obama is, re- is elected in 2008. And then we start seeing this problem of the Republicans were guilty of it too. One party overreaches, it swings back in the other direction. That party overreaches, it swings back in the other direction. But what's transpired in the last few years I find particularly interesting and I think was well represented on Tuesday – and Wednesday, and Thursday, and I'm pretty sure Arizona is still counting ballots, uh, which is probably something else that we should talk about, the actual mechanics of elections, because I don't know what's happened to this country, but we can't really, other than Florida, we can't really seem to do it well. Interesting bookend to where I started that uh, whole conversation as well. Um, We're seeing these really narrow outcomes now, where in To start in 2020, voters basically said, We're so very much done with Donald Trump, but we didn't, they didn't empower the other party all that much. Republicans overperformed, taking a lot of seats in the House. I, I, to me, this is the interesting part of this is I think the message here is the level of dissatisfaction that most voters seem to have for both political parties right now is being manifest in a different way than it was for about 15 years where you had huge pendulum swings. And now we're getting these very, very narrow outcomes where neither party, even if they are uh, empowered in the branches of government, are so narrowly empowered that there's not a whole heck of a lot that they can do. That's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Well, uh, I, I will admit to not being um, the most um, avid political uh, news consumer. Um, so I, I was listening to NPR uh, last Tuesday night, and that was kind of the first I'd heard anyone talk about an expected red wave to, to get you a sense of how out of touch I was. But I also did look at some polls, and the polls, uh, the indication there was, well, Republicans are probably going to pick up some seats, might be a lot might not be. Um, so I to me, this was in like the the realm of possibility. This doesn't seem like a huge polling error. Um, my takeaway was was a little different, although it does relate to everything you're saying. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a contradiction. Um, 
But uh, I somewhat sarcastically said the next day, you know, who would have thought the Republican primary voter strategy of nominating a bunch of yahoos would backfire on them? Um, there was a lot of very fringe candidates, and most, if not all of them, lost. Um, people denying that President Biden won the 2020 election. Um, people with all sorts of other fun and crazy ideas. Um, and my takeaway, I would love to be able to say, uh, so as a contrast, if you look at Republican candidates in particular, that's the party I'm currently talking about, um, look at uh, Kemp in Georgia, look at uh, DeSantis in Florida won by 19 points over Christ, uh, Abbott soundly defeated. To be uh, fair, we should make Beto a point uh, about uh, Charlie Crist in Florida, that yeah. uh, this is a man who has uh, run for statewide office there as a Republican, as an independent, and as a Democrat. He has lost as representing all three of those, well, one's not a party, uh, all three of those labels. So it is certainly not for lack of trying. Yeah, no. And it, I mean, there's so there's another side to this. The Democrats, by putting up people like Stacey Abrams, Beto O'Rourke, and, and Crist, uh, we're not putting the best foot forward, despite uh, some of the social media buzz about the f- the former two of those candidates. Um, but just absolute dominant victories, like blowout. Like not, it wasn't like a narrow victory in these cases. So you get a relatively normal Republican. Um, and so what I what I would love to say is, well, virtue matters, integrity matters. I think really the takeaway is more Smithian in terms of Adam Smith that propriety matters. Um, not that any of these people are necessarily good people. I don't know them well enough to be able to say that. Um, but at least having basic like decency and politeness uh, does seem to matter. Um, having a policy position uh, or range of policy positions that are not on the fringe matters. Um, And my other takeaway on this is, you know, if the Democrats seem to be celebrating, even though they lost, they lost, they lost some seats, right? Um, Their celebration is we didn't lose as badly as everyone said we were going to. If that is what, what is a win for Democrats, their party is in some terrible shape right now, right? Like I, I get that. Yes, it breaks with historic precedent. I think, you know, point well taken. On the other hand, they still lost seats. Like this is not a good election for them. They're going to be able to do less uh, politically in the next two years. Um, and they're celebrating as if they, you know, as if it was like 2002 for them, as if they had, you know, uh, picked up seats. Uh, and that's that's not the case at all. So um, I'll just leave it there, I guess. But my takeaway is, is kind of fringe candidates lost, um, repeat losers lost again. Um, and this is still a loss for Democrats, and I, I don't quite get the enthusiasm uh, buzzing around. We, we have perhaps <clears throat> a real manifestation here of uh, Kissinger's quip about the Iran-Iraq war, can't they both lose? And I guess kind of both of them did in a way there. I want to make one note about the polling because this is something that I'm interested in. And it, it, it's interesting that it seems the, the reality that is now coalescing after a period of time where we thought that we just had – lost this mechanism for having a other than election results, having an idea what people were thinking. You're right, Dylan, actually, the the polls tracked. Um, What was uncommon here is in elections like this, you typically see undecided independent voters break and break in one direction. And the assumption that I think was built on top of the polling data that we had was that in typical midterm fashion – that they would break in favor of Republicans in this one. And they didn't really. They, it, it was very mixed, but largely breaking in favor of Democrats. Again, which is just to me reinforces this kind of we don't like or trust either of you. And we really don't want to do the pendulum thing anymore where we're going through these waves. So it's just a whole mixed bag of results that seem to indicate to me this massive amount of dissatisfaction, uh, not just with how things are going in general, like the right track, wrong track question has been overwhelmingly this country is on the wrong track for a long period of time now. Um, the Every recent president's approval rating at some point has gotten down to just ridiculously low points. There was an NBC poll, I think, a week ago that had Joe Biden's approval at 28 um, percent. There's a lot of dissatisfaction out there and with the candidate options that they're getting as well. So that's – we're back to a point where the polls may actually be telling us something fairly accurate. Uh, it's just the assumptions that we have of what is normal. 
aren't really holding up anymore. So like the House, the median voter always wins. And the median voter votes in a particular electoral context in their states for particular candidates. So, so candidate quality wins. If you, if you look at this, you look at – I think you see really strong evidence that <clears throat> about 80 percent of the country will vote for a particular party regardless. So this is always a battle over that 20 percent. I think if, if, if it tends to be that if you put up a, a normal candidate, you can probably get 45 as the expectation. So you're really looking at that last 10 percent of voters. And you look at this, you know, some people were, were saying that this is a disaster for the Republican Party. I don't think that's true. If you break this down into local elections now, this last cycle was certainly a disaster for Michigan Republicans, um, state government all around, the, the Michigan House, the Michigan Senate, uh, all the major statewide offices uh, went to Democrats. But you look just across the border in Ohio and Republicans did very well. You look at a place like Florida, Republicans did very well. You look at a place like New York State. Republicans did, you know, they didn't win New York State, but they did substantially better. Um, and you have in other cases, in other contexts, you have sharp divergences. In Georgia, you have, you know, Governor Kemp very comfortably getting reelected. Uh, you have uh, Herschel Walker now going to a runoff. Um, you know, did not track with the governor. You see similar disjunctions between, uh, you know, in this case, both candidate, candidates won, but Governor DeWine De, uh, in Ohio and J.D. Vance, those margins are much, much different uh, despite the fact that they both won. And I think all of those things are instructive. And I think, I think both parties have recently sought to sort of maximize mobilization of the base and have ignored the median voter theorem. And I think this is a, a vindication for one of the classics of political science. That is, I think, one of the big narratives of, of the last week has been, uh, and Dylan, you were pointing at this as well, how well the normies did. Uh, now, look, to be abundantly clear, the desire to run for an office like governor of a state suggests to me that you're not really a normal in most understandings of it is my my uncle who used to teach political science uh would often say that you have to be a little bit crazy to get into politics and you have to be a lot crazy to do well uh i've i've heard him say this for at least 25 years so that well predates a lot of the craziness we're seeing now but you see this in a bunch of different places around the country where you had states with a uh two top of the ticket races usually governor and senator where, uh, at least from the perspective of the Republican Party, the normie candidate did very well and outran the call them what you want, this more national conservative Trumpian MAGA candidate. Georgia is one of those examples with Kemp running so far ahead of Herschel Walker. Ohio is another one of those, even though J.D. Vance was victorious by a much smaller margin than Mike DeWine, who's about as normie Republican as you can possibly. He's like, if you ask central casting for a normie Republican, they would send you Mike DeWine. Um, And then even with the underperformance of Arizona fascinates me. uh, And this is maybe we can talk a little bit about the the civil society confidence question that I think we're going to have to be dealing with more and more, and I think Arizona is a good vehicle for that, that you had originally the perception was going to be that uh, Blake Masters, the Senate candidate backed by former uh, uh, partner of Peter Thiel and backed by Peter Thiel, was going to possibly have to drag Carrie Lake, the governor candidate, across the finish line. And then it looked like it was going to be the other way around where she was outperforming him. And at the end of the day, it looks like neither of them are going to actually be victorious. They have called the Senate race for Mark Kelly, the Democrat senator in that state. And it's coming closer and closer to the point where they'll call the uh, uh, governor election for Katie Hobbs, the Democrat nominee there. Uh, I I think it is interesting that, yes, those fringe candidates uh, are not being as favorably received at the ballot box. I think that that is a 
positive development for our civic culture. Uh, I think the biggest problem, and I've talked about this on this program before, is, and I've, to different people over the course of the last week have made this point, because I bring it up every time the subject comes up, one of the most prescient speeches in a recent American political civic life was Mitch McConnell on the floor of the United States Senate at the final passage out of the Senate of the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act, where he made the point, you people think you're getting money out of politics. That's not what you are doing. You are getting money out of the political parties, and it is not going to have the results that you think it is going to have. And I think we have seen over the last 20 years how right he was about that. That there seems to be an inverse correlation between how strong the political parties are and how much partisanship we have. As the parties have gotten weaker, partisanship has increased, not decreased. And we're, I, I find over the last 10 years, too, to prove some interesting things that used to be conventional wisdom wrong, this idea that it would just be a great idea if we had more people voting and participating in elections, that we would be better as a country if that were the case. I think we've seen that the opposite of that is true. We have gotten more, we're getting presidential election level participation in midterm elections now, which used to be much lower voter turnout. Are we healthier as a society as a result of this? Is it, or at least has it correlated with better health of this republic? Quite the opposite. We seem to have more civic health problems now, but we're turning out more people to vote, uh, which draw from that the conclusions that you will. I think one of the – coming back to Arizona real quick, I'm curious for your thoughts on this as well. One of the biggest challenges I think we are going to face is if a lot of these states can't figure out how to more quickly produce – count election results. We had – All the conversation about the problems with elections that we had over the last couple of years, some of them based in outright falsehoods, uh, the problem has never been on the voting side. It has always been on the counting and certification side. Arizona, last time I checked, still at like 80-some percent being counted. Pennsylvania, similar. Uh, Nevada, similar. And you contrast that with Florida, that becomes this national hotspot in 2000 in one county because of a kind of strangely designed ballot and this whole month-long effort to try to divine the intentions of voters from little hanging pieces of cardboard off of a ballot. And to Florida's credit, they decide, like, this is never going to happen again. And now they have one of the most efficient election vote-counting programs in the entire country. And I really think if we do not find a way to address that problem, and again, why states like Arizona and Pennsylvania that were so slow in doing this in the presidential election two years ago didn't immediately fix those problems, start doing very obvious things like if we're going to do this much early voting, then you know count those votes as they come in. They get like Florida does. They're the first ones posted. Then they go through counting the votes that happen on election day. Florida knows results immediately. And because Pennsylvania just decided for whatever reason that I can't quite figure out that we're just going to wait to do it all in, in one evening. It is like Pennsylvania is the equivalent of me in philosophy classes when I was in college. It's like at papers due tomorrow, I guess I'm going to have to write it tonight. <laughs> it, it, is, it, it, it didn't always work out great for me there, and it's not working out well for the country right now. Of course, different states have all they, – they determine their own voting procedures, counting, all that sort of things, ballots. Um, I think Florida is now, amazingly, a good example, as you point out. Um, I will say, though, to reassure any listeners, um, we have uh, a standard in this country that there are people from both parties, actually multiple parties, even third parties, that observe the counting in every state, um, all over the country. The counts are reliable, but the appearance is not always such. And I do agree that that is a problem. Even if at the end of the day, they're going to count all the votes, and it's going to be more or less exact. You know, it, you know, there's I'm sure there's some margin of error, but for the most part, it's going to be the results are going to be the results. And we, we don't need to worry so much about that. Um, 
when it takes time, Americans are impatient people. We invented the drive-through, as far as I know. Um, uh, but I'm not. I'm not patient enough to research and discover if I'm right about that. Uh, uh, you know, we it, we. It's the kind of thing that we feels love, right. Yeah, we love fast food. We love we love that instant button on Amazon. You know, the buy now thing, which somehow they trademarked or whatever, and no one else can do it. But uh, you know, we 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 just we love instant gratification. And that's true of our politics as well. We want to vote, and we want to know the next day who won. Um, and when people don't know, suddenly, you know, justified or not, it opens the opportunity um, for demagogues and others uh, to appeal to the more skeptical side of the American people, the more impatient side. Um, I think that gets back to you know the problem. I don't. I won't say a problem with more people voting, but at least. Um, problem with large voter pools, uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, you know, I, the, the fewer people vote, uh, voting for one particular position, the more the one vote matters, right? Um, but you open it up. How do you get crowds of people to come? Well, you just find whatever weird thing they're into. And so that worked uh, weirdly for Donald Trump in 2016. He found a population that just was was ready to go vote, but no one was really tapping into it um, to some degree. Um, on the other hand, I think this year, uh, this midterm has shown uh, that most people don't have that magic touch. Uh, you can try, but it's it's kind of, it's a temptation to say, well, all I need is to find you know some group of people out there that wasn't voting before and I'm going to I'm going to appeal to them with some new message right and so I guess the message was like the QAnon people and the election deniers or whatever and that's what Republicans were betting on and it was a bad bet um and I think most people would have told them ahead of time it was a pretty bad bet I think it's it's not even as much the finding something that those people are into as finding something that they disdain yeah, that too. So yep. much of the motivation is, I think we've seen this with numerous elections now, again, to get back to questions of American civic health, uh, has been oppositional. It, it has been against the other side rather than for the side that they want. I mean, so the, the question then becomes, how do we get a healthier political and civic culture in this country? How do we move from where we are with this massive amount of dissatisfaction that is getting more engagement from people but more engagement along negative lines? How do we turn that into – again, this is where I come back to the thing about people voting, that you know, to, to not act is to act. Yeah. Um, everybody who used to decide, looked at elections and didn't turn out to vote. It was you know, overdetermined uh, phenomenon. There's too many reasons for why those people don't vote. But I think one of them can generally be viewed as there was enough contentment with the status quo that they didn't feel the need to take the time out of their schedules to go vote for one or the other. They were It was a tacit uh, admission that they were okay with whichever way it went. And people are now not okay with whatever way it went, not as much because they have a huge passion for what they're for, but because they have a huge passion for what they're against. One of the ways that you could conceivably bring people together in this sort of thing is addressing the sort of problems we have in vote counting, making it a point and a bipartisan point to sort of make institutions functioning match their expectations. I think it's a completely reasonable expectation to have an orderly, timely counting of votes. And there are, as as Dylan pointed out, there's, there's different sets of rules across all sorts of jurisdictions. There are different clerks responsible for all of these things. But it also is very clear that we have some states that are models of how to do this and that uh, states that are having these problems should look to those models. This is one of the wonderful things about having this, you know, the upside of this diversity of election processes is this acts as sort of a laboratory. And we can f- identify best practices, get behind those, and uh, change voting uh, how counts are made. Because at this point, the counts delays contributes to polarization and contributes to 
a lack of trust that then bleeds over into all sorts of other aspects of our electoral process and uh, I, think, I think diminishes the incentives for constructive civic engagement. I think we see it in – it helps us notice it in other areas of life as well. John Podhoritz at, at Commentary, I, I always like where he pegged kind of the start of this sense that we seem to have as a country that things don't work right anymore. Uh, and he attributes it or at least the start of it or when he started noticing it to the 2017 – Oscars. Did you remember what happened at the 2017 Oscars? Warren Beatty announces, because he was given the wrong envelope, the wrong winner of Best Picture. And they have to run out and stop the whole thing and say, no, actually, it was a different film that won. Um, I think it was, I'm trying to remember which movies it was. This tells you how far the Oscars has faded from consciousness as well. And I don't even remember what... Uh, uh, it was uh, – thank you, our pro uh, producer, Daniel, just jumping in there to tell me it was Moonlight and La La Land. La La Land was announced as the winner. It was actually Moonlight that won. Shows you how long those films have endured in my mind. Uh, I have seen neither. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you, you this start was, This to... was in, in the aftertime. Yes. When I had kids. And, yes. You know, yes. before then I watched movies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, and as fewer and fewer people actually watched the Oscars, fewer people actually saw this happen. But I was like, you know, John trying to find this place where it seems like things just started going off the rails, not just in uh, political and civic life, but even in cultural life as well. And anything that could be done to help instill confidence in people in – this gets back to my Yuval Levin hobby horse that I, I ride all the time – confidence in our institutions, that the institutions are there to do something specific, that they're doing the thing that they're supposed to do rather than being vehicles for kind of a, a venal personal promotion of the individuals who are a part of those institutions. There's another way that this bleeds over. When you have – these very polarized elections, what you get is very slim majorities, which make it very hard for whatever party wins, quote unquote, to actually govern and actually deliver on the promises they've made to voters. NBC News right before we came in has called the House for uh, the Republican Party. We will have a Republican House. We will have a razor thin majority. We have just like the Democrats did for the last two years. Yes, we have. And and that was something that in both the Senate and the House, it allows, you know, fringe members of the party to have an outside influence on policy. It allows them to delay things. It creates an incentive when you have a highly polarized environment. It creates an incentive not to go and look for perhaps people in the other party to get on board and to build some sort of bipartisan consensus. So you have this compounding where people are increasingly angry at the government and the government is increasingly unable to address their concerns because of this dysfunction in governance, you will have, you know, you have many House Republican House members right now talking about how they are dissatisfied with House leadership in the Republican Party. I don't know who the House Speaker is going to be. I don't envy whoever gets that position because it's going to be very difficult with a very slim majority and a very internally divided party. The one other election-related subject that we should cover, and we talked uh, about it in a couple different ways on this program before, did we really underestimate the importance and the impact that the issue of abortion was going to have on this election. I, I actually remember shortly after, remember if it was right after Dobbs was argued or if it was when the uh, opinion first leaked that, you know, I, I guess my somewhat more hopeful view in all of this thought that it had an opportunity to uh, help better our civic culture because it would actually compel people to do some of what Dan was talking about here, find ways to do what politics is supposed to be for, which is making accommodations on things that we don't all agree on. Uh, but I think what we saw as a result is that 
places where you had something on the ballot, particularly in a constitutional amendment fashion, um, that the uh, abortion rights side of it was uh, very successful. Um, no matter which way is a yes or no, you had to go on that. And I was, I was talking to Dan this morning and made the point that in, in most cases, when it comes to constitutional amendments on, on ballots, the inclination of the voter is towards the status quo. Whether that's a yes or a no, it is generally towards, I need a super compelling reason to change something, particularly when it comes to the Constitution. But we saw places where, you know, it, whether yes or no, can, uh, Michigan and Kentucky, there were different votes, um, different orientations of what was on the ballot in Michigan. It was protecting abortion rights. In Kentucky, it was basically saying it empowers the legislature to do what the legislature does, that there is no right to it in the Constitution. Um, and the abortion rights side was victorious. So uh, I would say I'm certainly guilty of underestimating the impact that Dobbs, the overturning of Roe, was going to have on American political life, at least when it comes to the ballot box. I mean, I think I actually think what happened is somewhat in line with the discussion we had in terms of uh, this became a state issue. And I think it, it mattered in the states where it was on the ballot. Um, there probably was a bit more, you know, pro-choice turnout um, in some of those cases, although I think there's pro-life turnout, too. Um, in fact, in Michigan, for example, it was close. I mean, it, it you know, this amendment was added. But to your point, I actually think adding the am amendment for a lot of people was about preserving the status quo. If you think about Constitution not as a document, but as, uh, you know, the, the way in which things hold together in a polity, um, as, for example, in uh, Great Britain, they have no written Constitution, but they still have a Constitution. Well, for a lot of people... Um, whether we want it to be or not, and I, I don't uh, personally, um, Roe versus Wade is part of the Constitution as much as how society, how, how society had functioned, how the world legally, how the country legally had functioned for 50 years, um, and they voted to keep it that way in their state. Um, so, I mean, I'm against voters amending the Constitution full stop. Like, I voted no to all of them. I didn't read some of them. <laughs> I mean, I, I did read ahead of time, but you know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, vote to amend. No. Um, because that's why we have Congresses and they have a whole procedure and it's it's complicated for them to do it because it should be complicated to amend a constitution. Uh, and then people go around, they get a bunch of signatures and they put on the ballot and then people just, you know, voters vote and they change their constitution. So um, I'm, a, I'm in principle against it on that side. Um, I do think um, from a pro-life point of view, um, it is, it's unfortunate. It's sad, um, especially in the case, I know, of Michigan's uh, uh, law. Um, it really opens things up even more uh, than what things were. It, you know, a lot of people probably thought they were voting for the status quo, um, but uh, it kind of annuls any, any sort of requirements, um, conditions that had been put in place. Um, on things like whether an, a minor can get an abortion without their parents' knowledge and permission, um, things like that. Um, that, uh, you know, this is something I'm, I'm sure people will be mourning. Um, on the other hand, something we talk about often and I think is very important to keep in mind uh, is that politics is not ultimate. Um, Pro-life people have been doing a lot of great things um, over the years in terms of uh, pregnancy resource centers and um, adoption, all those sorts of things. And all those things are still good and they can still be done and they absolutely should be. Um, so I would say don't despair um, as, as much as it might be uh, a disappointment. Um, but remember that it doesn't all come down to politics. And um, ultimately, people need a hope that politics can't give them um, if we really want to see abortion go away. I think you have a very mixed message on this because you have two places Ohio and Florida that went through a legislative process after Dobbs to implement policies restricting abortion. Those governors were returned. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelming margins. I think what you see with abortion is you see when there is uncertainty, when there is a vacuum of legislation. I think there, there are certain people that get very anxious. I think there are a lot of people that voted for Proposal 3 in Michigan 
that I think Dylan's absolutely right, did not know what they were voting for. What we have in Michigan is we have a 1931 statute, or what we had, rather, was a 1931 statute that uh, had not been enforced since Roe v. Wade. It banned abortion except in cases of uh, preservation of the life of the mother. Um, We had a Republican state legislature that refused to even try to legislate. Now, we had a Democratic governor, and she very well may have vetoed any initiative. But you had a court stay after Dobbs that preserved, that did not allow the law as legislated to be implemented. And you had a very curious constitutional amendment that talked about, you know, uh, that this amendment would override any existing statutes. It did not specify what those statutes were. There was no discussion. There was no debate about the sort of thing that Dylan was talking about, about parental notification, about these sorts of things. These sorts of things weren't highlighted and discussed during the campaign. And as a result, I think a lot of people went to the polls thinking they were voting for the, uh, the, the, the legal regime that exists, existed prior to Dobbs. That is not what they voted for. And I think you will see um, some very negative consequences to that. And I'm hoping that in the future, um, you know, that pro-life people come up with a constructive legislative agenda for positive change uh, that, can, uh, that can work uh, to sort of really begin a dialogue in this state as to what actually we want a legal regime in Michigan to look like that can get the buy-in of most voters because the, the consent of the governed is absolutely essential and it's absolutely essential that we have a functioning legislative process to deliver on that consensus and that we don't have this sort of, uh, you know, winner-take-all mentality for that because that's not stable. There will be another constitutional amendment next cycle we have um, that, will, that will be on the ballot again. This, this will not – as long as this sort of – as these sorts of extreme policies oscillate back and forth – Politics around this issue will continue to be polarized and it will continually and and no settlement will be reached. The other takeaway I have from this that I feel surprised by, but maybe I shouldn't be, is despite spending 50 some years working towards the goal of what happened in the Dobbs opinion, the legal overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey that uh, also followed from there. How utterly unprepared that movement of people was to be victorious, at least on that count of it. I think we also learned, too, that if you want to break down that as a coalition, that there were multiple parts of that coalition. There were people whose agenda is ending abortion, which I want to be clear also does not mean restricting or outlawing abortion. Ending it is never going to look like that. Ending it is going to move us to the place of being a society that is far less desirous of that as an option. But there was also a component of it, and that was the the vehicle through which that victory was only ever going to be achieved, which was the legal approach, and that there were uh, people within that segment who were more anti-Roe than they were pro-life. And for whatever reason, you have this incredibly powerful movement in American civic life that just seemed to not expect that they were ever going to actually win, that the result that came from Dobbs was never actually going to transpire. And you see that in how unprepared, I think, they were to be able to make the kind of arguments that would need to come from that legal opinion in Dobbs uh, being handed down from the court. They were not ready for what was next. I think that tracks really well with what Dan was saying about, you know, governors and states uh, that have used the legislative process to restrict or put, you know, regulations on abortion. Um, 
Ohio and Texas, this was not new for them. Um, you know, other states as well. They've been doing this for decades. Um, their pro-life movements had a state-level aspect to them um, in a way that I don't know that, you know, we necessarily had up here in Michigan, um, at least not not in a comparable way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think for a lot of people, um, it was just kind of this culture war sort of thing. And if we just get rid of Roe versus Wade, no more abortion. And that's not at all how it worked. We, of course, talked about that at the time. It took it down to the state level and different states were more or less or different pro-life um, movements were more or less uh, prepared for the legal side of that on the state level. Let's move to the final thing that we wanted to discuss. And Dan, I'm just going to turn it over to you to kind of give us the latest on what has been happening in Ukraine as we approach the uh, G20 meeting about to start. So we have seen uh, Russian withdrawal from Kurzon, which is a major, major victory. Um, This is, listening to the news this morning, President Zelensky of the Ukraine thinks that this is a very, you know, tide-turning event in the conflict. We have seen now a steady erosion of the Russian presence. We have seen increasingly ineffectual, not only Russian military operations, but uh, Russian conscription operations. We began this conflict with millions and millions of Ukrainians fleeing their homes for nations around the world. Now we have uh, hundreds of thousands of young draft eligible men in the Russian Federation fleeing um, to Kazakhstan, to neighboring states. Um, What you have is 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 a military disaster. Uh, and what you have is now, uh, with a G20 meeting where, uh, Russia will not be present is you will have nations meeting, uh, in part to address this question and what is the future of Eastern Europe going to look like? What is the future of the Russian Federation and the global community as it's increasingly become a sort of pariah state going to look like? Uh, The G20 is also very important because uh, we are having – President Biden is meeting with uh, Xi Jinping of China. Um, President Biden has reiterated our support for Taiwanese independence. they on this program a number of weeks ago we talked about uh speaker pelosi or soon to be former speaker pelosi's uh visit to taiwan in support of taiwan uh and the chinese are very much still uh angry about that and china is also in a situation now with its extensive covid lockdowns contributing to global supply chain crisis. The economic news of China is not good right now. Um, And we're looking at, you know, how do we avoid a sort of long-ranging global recession? And how do we navigate China's role in that? Um, so there's 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 a lot that uh, that leaders will be talking about the G20, um, not only in relation to the Ukraine, but in terms of uh, you know global response to increasingly shaky economic situation around the world. Um, I think we're finding uh, in case of both Russia and China, um, maybe a few too many people were buying their own propaganda. Uh, you have uh, Russian talking about uh, Russia talking about the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, this kind of pan-Slavism. Um, if that were the case, you'd see, uh, I, I think, uh, a lot less strident resistance uh, by the Ukrainians. Um, and uh, the loss of Kyrgyzstan um, after only a few months uh, you know, of occupancy there by the Russians um, it is a major loss for them. Um, the fact that their own people are abandoning uh, the country so as not to be the next in line to, to serve in this conflict shows a lack of confidence um, in Vladimir Putin and the Russian state and the Russian military. Um, and then in China, um, you know, it uh, turns out there there are actually economic laws uh, to life and uh, the zero tolerance, you know, COVID restriction policy uh, devastates economies. It is unrealistic. It is unworkable. Um, and, you know, they might say all they want about, uh, you know, 
how you can just make stuff happen with the state economically, but the reality is different, and they they are encountering that um, despite uh, you know whatever the party line may be. Um, so I mean, these talks uh, with with Biden. Um, Supposedly not going well. I hope not going well for reasons uh, that Dan mentioned, his support of Taiwan um, and hopefully also standing up for Hong Kong and, and other, you know, people who care, Chinese people who care about freedom um, and, and sovereignty for their own people and their own uh, nations. Um, and we'll see. We'll see. You know, we can hope that reality um, eventually becomes more persuasive than the propaganda, but there are places in the world such as North Korea, where people double down and double down and double down. Um, so there's hardly a certainty. Um, contra the Marxist line, there is no determinism to history. Um, we will see how things go, and we ought to hope and pray uh, that things go well in, in both Russia uh, and China. As Dan said, the <clears throat> we're dealing with the question of what does it look like for Russia's future within the global community of nations, or however it is we're supposed to phrase that these days. Uh, the element of that... I, deserves to be accentuated is is Russia becomes increasingly a pariah state, um, a pariah state with uh, one of the largest nuclear arsenals in the world, which we've certainly dealt with pariah states in the history of the world before. We've dealt with nations with large nuclear arsenals before. But I, I think you can make an argument that we have not seen a nation in the same kind of place that Russia is now finding itself largely just because of this action that it has taken in Ukraine, where it becomes a pariah to the extent that it has, but it still holds the, one of the largest nuclear stockpiles in the entire world. Also highlights, I think, the importance of, um, as you, you mentioned, nations that can double down on that. And you know, There's a reason we don't fear North Korea in the same way that um, even though they, as we know, have nuclear weapon, uh, we don't fear them in the same way that I think it's legitimate to fear that Russia might use it. Uh, another place where that is an issue on the table, a uh, nation that we don't believe has one yet, but certainly is seeking it, is Iran. And what is going on there right now is a large uprising uh, of people spurred by the state police murder of this young Muslim woman who was, uh, in, a, in in their view, inappropriately wearing her hijab, did not fully have her hair covered. And what you're looking at is essentially the, the uh, there's been an arrest of 14,000 some people. Uh, and it's looking like there's going to be a mass execution of the 14,000 some people in Iran. Again, this is a nation that is actively trying to develop nuclear weapons as well. Uh, so you see, in a sense, a world where there's things are getting, in some senses, more dangerous. Um, I, I hope that we're right about, I don't remember which one of you, I think it was Dylan, you made the point about uh, believing your own propaganda. I mean, we, we should be making this argument that one of as messy as all the conversation is that we just had about American elections and all of that, right? There are feedback loops that are built into a free society in terms of the exchange of information. I think one of the lessons that we have learned about Russia's decision to move into Ukraine is, and I, I think we're going to see similar lessons in stories about China in the coming years, that when you do not have the free flow of information in, within the state apparatus, you have generals obviously afraid to tell Vladimir Putin things that he doesn't want to hear, but they probably needed to because what we learned is, is now evidenced by what has transpired, they were utterly unprepared for what it was they were trying to accomplish in Ukraine. But when the truth is, exists, but nobody can speak it, the problems that that is going to create are going to be enormous. And we now find this kind of global uh, geopolitical problem uh, created not, perhaps not even largely, but certainly in part by the fact that societies that are structured that way do not give 
officials the information that they need to make appropriate decisions. Um, certainly, Vladimir Putin has his own agenda, and it is not a very good one. Um, but you, I think you can see the problem created by the lack of the free, free flow of information in societies like that that leads to this situation that certainly, if you put yourself in Vladimir Putin's shoes, is not the one he wanted to be in today. In a time in which free societies faced very real challenges, there are a lot of people on the left and right that look to sort of, you know, are looking for some sort of post-liberal solution. And when we look around in the world at what unfree societies are, those challenges are much greater and the dysfunction is much greater. And I hope that what people in America take away from this when they look around the world is that they look at our challenges today and redouble their efforts to address them because it can be worse. And in much of the world, it is frighteningly, terribly worse. And what we have managed to secure in this nation over the last 200 plus years is remarkable. Despite all of our challenges, all of our obstacles, all of our animosities, our conflicts, um, they're manageable. And um, we can rise to meet those challenges and make a more functional, free and virtuous society. There we got in the act and tagline. <laughs> Certainly we should call it a wrap there then. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please take a look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>